Well, welcome to Scum of the Earth. Those of you who don't know who I am, I am Mike Sayers, and I will be your tour guide through the scriptures tonight. We are currently involved with several other churches in Denver in a series that takes us through the Lord's Prayer uh, for the month of July and then the first week in August. So we'll be doing that then as well. And it reminded me of the story that I heard. There was uh, an argument between a couple old guys playing chess. Barney and Fred were, were two friends for a long period of time, and they had gotten past the point of rationality in an argument and had reached the point where they were trading insults with one another. And so Barney, frustrated, declares... Fred, you're going to end up in hell. And Fred retorted, me? What about you? You haven't been to church in 60 years. I'll bet you don't even remember the Lord's Prayer. I do too, said Barney. Oh yeah, go to Fred. I'll bet you 20 bucks you can't remember it. All right, you're on. Come on then, the Lord's Prayer. Let's hear it, Fred insisted. Barney closed his eyes for a second, took a deep breath, and began, Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord and my soul to keep, and if I die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. All right, here's your 20 bucks. <laughs> so, uh, let me recite to you how I first learned the Lord's Prayer. Paterimon, oentis oranis, ayestito to onomasu, ofeto y vasiliosu, yenitito tetrimasu, was inunon ke eptingis, con artonimon, con epiusion, dos imin simeron, ke afes imin ta ofilimita imon, Os que mis afiamentis ofiletes imon, que mis enengis y mas espirismon, a la risa y mas apo tu porinuru. For those of you who hadn't picked it up, that's Greek. And I recited that every Sunday for years until in middle school, when I realized that what I had been saying phonetically all that time was actually the Lord's Prayer, or the Our Father, as our Catholic brothers and sisters would call it. As a matter of fact, in the Orthodox Church, we call it the Paterimon, which means Our Father. So, I'd like to go back to just before the beginning of that prayer, it's actually reported in Luke's gospel. Luke takes it in more of a chronological way. And so he talks about when Jesus taught the disciples to pray this prayer. Matthew goes more thematically and includes it with a bunch of other prayers near the Sermon on the Mount. So let's go to Luke chapter 11, starting in verse 1. It should be up there on the screen to my right. One day Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, 
one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. Now we're going to switch over to Matthew, the Gospel, 6th chapter, starting in verse 9. Jesus replies, This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, or forgive us our sins, as we as have also forgiven our debtors, or as we have also forgiven those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now, here's the interesting part of that. The disciples asked Jesus how to pray. I just think that's odd. I think it's odd because of all the things Jesus did, maybe the thing that I would ask the least is, how do you pray? Me, because I'm more of a, you know, bells and whistles kind of a guy, I might have said, Lord, teach us how to cast out demons. Lord, teach us how to heal the sick. Teach us how to cure those who are lame. Lord, show us how to make a couple loaves and fishes feed five to 10,000 people. Do that. Like, teach us how to do that, Jesus. I think that would be what I would ask. But they're asking, Lord, teach us how to pray. And and this set my mind to wondering, like, why would they ask that? Why? And this is the answer I came up with. Maybe because Jesus' prayer life was his best-kept secret. Like when Jesus said, when you pray, don't pray in front of people to be acclaimed by men and women for how holy you are, but instead go in your private place, close the door, pray to your Father who's in secret. Like maybe Jesus actually practiced that. And the one thing they didn't know how to emulate in Jesus' life was how he was going to pray. And so they had to ask him about it out loud. They could pick up casting out demons by watching what Jesus did. They could pick up how to even cure people by watching what Jesus did. But maybe the prayer life was something that was mysterious because we're told that Jesus would go off for long periods of time in lonely places, early, early in the morning, late, late at night, to pray to his Father all by himself. And so they asked Jesus, hey, how should we pray? Because we see you've got a pretty hefty thing going between you and God. Like, you two are are like this. You're closer than close, and we'd like to be close too. We've been praying, we've been taught to pray since we were little tiny Jews. And now we're full grown, and we think you know something that we don't. And so Jesus gives them what I believe is a template for prayer. And we're given the words, and I think it's good to say the words just as they are, a lot. 
One of the first things I notice is that left to myself, without this kind of a teaching, my prayers would most likely begin and end with me. Like, I would start off asking God for stuff for me. And if I was really altruistic, I might end up praising him for things he had done for me. And this outline that Jesus gives of prayer does not start with me and does not end with me. Does not start with you, does not end with you. First, God is a father to us. Now, Jeff Warner went over this last week during his swan song sermon. God wants to be a father to us. That's news. He's he's dad. That's the word that Jesus uses, Abba, father, dad. Not just like what little kids say, but even what teenagers might say. It's, it speaks of a relationship that's, that's certainly more intimate and more close than the way a lot of people think about God. This is the weird thing. In the very first line of this prayer, we have what appears to be two opposite ideas of God joined together. Our Father who art in heaven. On the one hand, you have Father, Dad, very close. On the other hand, you have a heaven high and exalted, far above our reality. And somehow, Jesus brings these together in the opening line of this prayer. We're supposed to focus on God. God in his transcendence, the cosmic ruler, the one who lives in heaven, and God in his most intimate, imminent self. Also, he uses the word our, our father, not my father, our father. There's something about being part of a corporate body here. Like when Jesus wants you to pray, he says, you know, it's more like a little kid talking to his dad or a little girl talking to her dad than it is like the prayers you've heard in church. But don't miss the fact that it's a little kid who has brothers and sisters, that you're part of a family, that it's, it's, it's not just you. John Piper says this, So when Jesus tells us in Matthew 6-9 to pray, our Father in heaven, he is telling us that the prayer-hearing God is majestic and merciful. He is high, and he also dwells with the contrite. He is a king, and he is a father. He is holy, and yet he humbles himself. He is far above us, 
and ready to come to us. He has plans for the whole earth and the universe and wants us to care about those great plans and pray about them. He has plans for your personal life at the most practical level, and he wants you to pray about that. I want to stress that I see the Lord's Prayer as a template, something to guide our prayers. I'd like you to look at this as an outline for your own prayers. So that when you first approach God in prayer by yourself, I would like you to think about approaching him as Father, a father who is a father to many brothers and sisters, some of whom you don't agree with. That, that there's, a, there's a community of faith all around the world who approach God in the same way that you do, in the same way that you might not like your older brothers or sisters in the home you grew up with, or your younger brothers and sisters are a pain in the butt because they're younger brothers and sisters. That you also are praying to God and he looks at you as part of this broad family. There are no Lone Rangers in God's church. But of course, even the Lone Ranger had Tonto, right? So even he wasn't a Lone Ranger. We have to remember that. That scum of the earth is a piece of the body of Christ. That whether you're Catholic or whether you're Orthodox whether you're some brand of Protestant, you know, whether you're sometimes liberal or conservative, doesn't matter. What matters is that we are a family of God. When we pray, we pray to the same God. When we pray, let's approach God in that way. We got that first section, our Father who art in heaven. Now, there's lots of ways to look at it, but sometimes if you emphasize different words as you're going along, you get a different idea of what it means. So we're going to do that right now really quick. So, you can say, our Father who art in heaven. Our Father. And so, as you, you pray and you think about the word our, our, okay, and you start to think about your brothers and sisters around the world who live in different countries, and worship the same God. And then your mind goes even farther. You go, Lord, you're not just the father of the people on this earth and this planet right now. You're the father of people for thousands of years who have called upon your name. It's not just me right now. It's the universal church. It's those who are dead in Christ and those who are alive in Christ. And here's another weird thing. God is not father to everybody across the earth indiscriminately. There are people to whom he is a father, and there are people to whom he is not a father. Jesus himself said to a certain group of religious people, you're doing what your father the devil does. Because if God really were your father, you would be accepting of me and my message. But you're not, because God is not your father. That really pissed some people off. But one of the things we're saying when we say our Father, when Jesus teaches us to say our Father, is that he is Father to his disciples. It's the disciples' prayer. Probably better call the disciples' prayer than the Lord's prayer because the Lord had his own prayers that he prayed privately. We get the 
a peek in John, the 17th chapter, about Jesus' kind of prayer. That's probably the real Lord's prayer. This is the disciples' prayer. They asked him, how should we pray? And so he's telling them. Second word. Our Father in heaven. For you have not received the spirit of adoption, or you have not received the spirit of bondage and fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons and daughters, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. God wishes himself to be called Father rather than Lord. Why would Jesus tell us to call God Father? Is there a way we should approach him that's different than we normally would? Some people come, you know, fearfully trembling before God in prayer because they know they've made a mess of their lives. As a child, when I made a mess of things, I would fearfully approach my own father. But the difference is, he was still my dad. If he had spanked me, and there were plenty of reasons for him to spank a young Mikey that I won't go into now. But he would hold me. And he would let me know that he was still my father and that I could relax in his arms. And then our father in heaven, our father in heaven, the place where holiness and justice reign. You know, a lot of us struggle with the concept of father, maybe because your dad just wasn't there physically. Maybe he wasn't there emotionally. Maybe he was there. If he was there, he wasn't perfect. And I want to say that all of us, no matter what kind of fathers we had, should not judge God the Father by our Father's actions or inactions. Rather, you should judge your earthly Father by your heavenly Father's thoughts, words, and deeds. That goes against the grain, doesn't it? This is what I'm telling you to do. I don't care how good of a father you had. I don't care how bad of a father you had. What I'm saying is, is God is your father. He's the template for all fathers. And we should judge our earthly fathers by his standards and not vice versa. That may be a much more healthy psychological way to look at things. And then Jesus goes on. The next section, he says, Hallowed be thy name. This is the first thing that Jesus says we should give to God in this prayer. That when we pray, we're to ask God for this kind of response to who he is. Hallowed be your name. That we should 
hallow God's name. That we should reverence who He is. That we should honor God above all things. That we should esteem Him. That we should admire Him. That we should value Him. That we should treasure His name above all things. None of the other requests that happen in the Lord's Prayer have to do with your own heart in response to God, except for this one. And I want to say that it's the first thing that Jesus asks us to do in response to God, and it's probably the most important as a result. I would say that every other request that's going to happen from here on out in the Lord's Prayer is actually a subset of this main set, which is honoring God. God's name is a reflection of who he is. That's the Jewish mindset. Therefore, pray that God's name be hallowed. It means that, Lord, I don't want your name to be despised. The way that God's kids act have a lot to do with how his name is revered, honored, or despised, or dishonored. It just does. You know, we really shouldn't judge God by the way his kids act, any more than you should judge me by the way my kids act. But this prayer addresses a reality that we really don't want to acknowledge. And that is, people do judge God on the way Christians act. They do. And by acknowledging that in this prayer, it seems to me that Jesus is saying, they have a point. In the present day, God's people could honor God's name by living rightly, as opposed to living wrongly. As a matter of fact, ancient Israel got in trouble with God because of their bad actions bringing dishonor upon his name. You can find that in Exodus, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, the prophet Amos. So Jesus is acknowledging the way things really are. So the question becomes, what are we doing to make God's name special in the world? What are we doing? What are we saying? What are we thinking? We have to honor God in our thoughts, in our speech, in our interactions. Let me first say this. And this is more for the kind of Protestant fundamental evangelical church in the U.S. than it is for maybe any other group in the body of Christ. If we make God too understandable, we essentially do not call him holy. If we make God too understandable, we essentially do not make him holy. Because holy means holy other, something different. 
He's not the same as you. He is set apart from you. He is sacred. He is cut in a way different than you are. And as the heavens are higher over the earth, God's thoughts and ways are higher than yours. And you will never understand him fully. As a matter of fact, if you ever do think you understand him fully, you are on very, very dangerous ground. Leave some room for mystery. You don't know God's thoughts about everything. If you did, you'd be equal to God, and you're not. Let's always leave some room for not understanding God. We try to make him our personal savior, right? Personal, personal savior. Whenever I go to the store and they have personal items for sale, they're always little, right? They're things you can put in your bag that you won't get tagged for at TSA as you go through the, the line, right? Got my little personal toiletries here. I got my little personal... He's big. He's big. Let him stay big. When I come to God, say to yourself, am I coming thinking of God as special? Or am I coming thinking of God doing things that I want him to do? What's your attitude when you come to prayer? How holy is he? How set apart is he? Do you talk to God as your master, or do you talk to God as your butler? Do you approach God as a dog, or do you approach God as a cat? Because we all know dogs have masters and cats have staff, right? You don't get what you want? Are you going to say something like, don't make me fire you and get a new God? Is that what you're going to say? God is special. God is set apart. There's a reason when you go into the jewelry store, they have the really big diamonds in a special case over on the side. Because they're set apart. How valuable is God? When God says to keep the Sabbath holy... He's saying, look, I want you to set a day apart. It should be different than the rest of the days. How set apart is God for you? I mean, I make fun of it a lot, but the uh, buddy Jesus thing, you know, that really annoys me. It really annoys me. Jesus becomes my, my buddy, my pal, my friend, and he is those things. But boy, he's not just those things. The second point is, how uh, would be your name in our words, in our speech? 
Nobody likes it when you screw up their name. I don't know anybody. I was an English teacher for quite a while. I had a list of kids' names to memorize, and I tried my hardest to say them the correct way. But there's always a name, right, that you don't get. And then there's all these laugh, laughter, and the kid feels terrible, like, no, this is how you pronounce my name. I know what that feels like when people pronounce my last name like some avian flu virus. Mr. Sars. No, no, it's Sars. Well, actually, it's Sakhaleriu, but my grandfather thought it was too long for the restaurant window, so it became Sears. Sears! S-A-R-E-S, like cares, C-A-R-E-S, like tears, T-A-R-E-S, like pears, P-A-R-E-S, not SARS! That's what I want to say, right? But I'm very nice when they mispronounce my name. Now, if you're Greek, you mispronounce my name, and you Greekify it, even though it's already been anglicized. So you... You anglicize, no, you Greekify and anglicize Greek word, or it becomes Saris. Like, really, you know, my brother and I are part of this uh, fraternity of, of Greek guys, and we are Matt and Mike Saris, because no self-respecting Greek will call you by anything that sounds less than Greek. Anyway. But you know how it feels when somebody screws up your name. How do you think God feels when people screw up his name? Don't you think he might feel disrespected? Hallowed be thy name. As a result, I don't think you should use God's name when you're Ticked off. We should never, ever, when you hit your thumb with a hammer, say, Jesus Christ. I'd rather you use my name. Just next time you hit your thumb with a hammer, go, Mike Sears. Just Mike Sears. You know, somebody cut you off in traffic, Mike Sears. Mike Sears, damn it. I mean, really. <laughs> Not SARS. I honestly would rather you use a word for human excrement rather than the name of God when something goes wrong. Say it in Greek. Skata, that's the name. That's the word. Skata, if something goes wrong, just do it in Greek. Better you don't do it at all. But if you must, if you must, but better if we just kept our mouth shut. Now, here's something that I really didn't realize, I think, until I was preparing uh, for the message today. I thought it was a brilliant observation. Another way we dishonor God with our words is by uttering false doctrine. 
false doctrine dishonors the name of God. When you think you know how God operates, and you tell people how God operates, and He doesn't operate that way, you're dishonoring His name. Anytime you use God's name, His character, His being, His way of doing things as a substitute to bolster your racism, you are using God's name in vain. Because God created every single race. And if you denigrate any one group of people, you are denigrating God's preferences in making humanity. You are dishonoring His name among the people who are listening to you. You are dishonoring Him. And His name will be blasphemed among the pagans because of you. If you talk about money in ways that are unbiblical, if somehow you get God's name to sanction your own greed, God expects you to be wealthy, you are dishonoring God's name with wrong doctrine. If you get hyper-spiritual, I'm thinking of the Corinthian church now, back in the first century, if you get hyper-spiritual and people think you're just stark raving nuts because you speak in tongues all the time, at work, out loud, you are dishonoring God. If you have a wrong view of suffering, someone you know is going through a very, very difficult time, maybe the uh, death of a loved one or a terminal illness, and you come along and you start saying, just praise your way out of that. You shouldn't be sad. God is good. You are bringing dishonor to God's name because the Lord has said, to mourn with those who are mourning, to weep with those who are weeping, rejoice with those who are rejoicing. Wrong doctrine, false doctrine, dishonors God's name. It's, and there's no better reason than I know of to study the Scriptures, being a Bible study, being a small group, than that. It's because you don't want to do that. You don't want to bring disrespect to people's view of God. Last point. How would be your name in our actions? John Chrysostom, one of the early church fathers, had this to say. The prayer to hallow God's name corresponds with what Jesus had previously taught. Let your light so shine before others that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Just as the seraphim too, giving glory, sing, Holy, holy, holy 
so hallowed means glorified. In effect, he is saying, enable us to live so purely that through us all may glorify you. It points us again to mature self-control that we may present to all a life so irreprehensible that every one of those who observe may offer to the Lord the praise due him for this. We are ambassadors for Christ in an unbelieving world. We are ambassadors for Christ in an unbelieving world. As has been said, sometimes you are the only Bible that a person will ever read. Therefore, I am begging us, let us not put the ass in ambassador. And here's the bottom line, pun intended. Ambassador, bottom line, here we go. We are asking that God's name be kept holy because we can't do it on our own. In this part of the prayer, we're asking God, may your name be holy. And I'm asking you to help me make your name holy. Help us in the church make your name holy because we cannot do it on our own. We suck at it, as a matter of fact, Lord. We're always saying things we shouldn't as a result of thinking things we ought not. And our actions are not in line with what we preach. So, Lord God, help us to honor your name. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. It's a request. That's why we pray. That's why we pray. Go back to Matthew chapter 6 on the board. Pray with me, please. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. And forgive us our sins, as we also have forgiven those who have sinned against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. May it be in Jesus' name. Amen.